0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans and we're going to pick up where we left off last week and look at probably one of the most uh, well-known, beloved, most memorized verses in the entire Bible. I imagine that most of you have this verse memorized. Uh, You've quoted it to yourself and to others many times. And I doubt that I'm going to say anything that you haven't already heard in today's sermon, but hopefully we'll all be stirred up by way of reminder as we look at this classic text, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Heavenly Father, we love this verse. This verse has provided us so much comfort, so much peace, so much hope and perspective. When we found ourselves in difficult times in life, And Lord, I'm sure there's some today that you brought here specifically to be reminded of this verse. And there's so much application here for each and every one of us, whether we're in the midst of a trial or we will be in a trial tomorrow or next week or next year. This is truth we need for the Christian life. So would you open our minds to understand and uh, to fully grasp what Paul meant by what he said here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the classic Old Testament illustration of how God causes all things to work together for good is the story of Joseph. Again, another story I'm sure you're familiar with It's found in Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50, and uh, I'm going to do my best to summarize uh, this great story for those of you that may not be as familiar uh, to it or with it. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, and the great-grandson of Abraham. He grew up in Canaan with his 10 brothers who hated him because they knew their father loved Him more than he loved any of them. And on top of that, he shared with them some dreams that he had had that made it seem like he thought that he was better than they were. And so they plotted together to get rid of him. And when this father sent Joseph to check on him one day, check on them one day, they seized him and stripped off that colorful tunic that uh, Jacob had given to him. And they threw him into a pit and contemplated his fate And rather than kill him, they decided to sell Joseph to a caravan of Midianites who were bound to Egypt. And in order to cover up their evil deed, they killed a goat and they dipped Joseph's tunic in the blood and brought it to Jacob and said that a wild beast had killed him and devoured his favored son. Jacob was inconsolable with grief Meanwhile, when the Midianites arrived in Egypt, they sold Joseph to a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, kind of the head of the secret service, if you will, in Egypt. And Joseph quickly rose through the ranks and became his personal assistant, and eventually he put him in charge of everything he owned. Well, Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph as well, and she was attracted to him and tried to convince him to sleep with her. But he refused her relentless seduction, and one day when they were all alone in the house together, she grabbed him and begged him to go to bed with her. Well, he immediately ran outside, leaving her holding his garment, and in a vengeful act of unrequited love, she convinced everyone that Joseph had tried to rape her. Her husband was furious and threw Joseph into jail where all of Pharaoh's prisoners were confined Well, once again, the Lord prospered Jacob, or excuse me, uh, prospered Joseph, and he found favor with the chief jailer, who put him in charge of all the other prisoners, and uh, two of which were the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the baker, who had some funky dreams while they were there in prison. And uh, he was able to interpret those dreams for them. And uh, when he interpreted the cupbearer's favorable dream, He asked him to remember him and put a good word in for him with Pharaoh when he was released and restored to service. Well, initially the cupbearer forgot to tell Pharaoh about Joseph, but when Pharaoh had some dreams of his own that no one else could interpret, the cupbearer remembered about Joseph and he shared his experience with him while he was in prison. And so Pharaoh commanded his release and asked him to come to interpret his dreams. Joseph not only told Pharaoh that God was warning him that a great famine was coming, but he also counseled him how he should prepare for it. And Pharaoh was so impressed with this man's wisdom, Joseph's wisdom, that he made him his right-hand man and gave him the responsibility of gathering and distributing all the food for the Egyptians and all the surrounding nations who would depend on Egypt's storehouses for their survival during the famine. One of those nations... Was Israel, And when the famine hit the land of Canaan, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And they, when they arrived and they bowed down before the head of the famine relief project, they had no idea that that was their brother, Joseph. Well, he recognized them and he disguised himself by speaking harshly to them and accusing them of being spies and demanded that they approve their innocence by bringing back their youngest brother. Joseph detained one of the brothers and sent the rest back with some grain and told them to return with his little brother, Benjamin, who was Jacob's new favorite son. On their second visit to Egypt, Joseph hosted a a big dinner for them and released them all to go back to Canaan. But before they left, he had his house steward put his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And when they were leaving town, He had them all arrested for stealing. Joseph told him that the consequence was that they all could go back home except for Benjamin, who had to stay and be his slave. Well, his brother Judah begged and pleaded with Joseph to let him take his place for fear that if Benjamin didn't return, their father Jacob would be overcome with grief. Well, Jacob or Joseph could see that His brother's hearts had changed, and they were no longer thinking of themselves, and he couldn't stand seeing them in such turmoil, and so he finally revealed his identity to them, and needless to say, they were shocked. And if you did turn back there, notice what he says in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 9 Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you For you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all of his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. Well, they went back to Canaan and loaded up. Jacob and their wives and their children who made up the budding nation of Israel, 70 people in all. And they went and settled in the land of Egypt and enjoyed a wonderful family reunion there. And uh, the nation became very prosperous and very numerous. Well, after living in Egypt for some 17 years, Jacob finally died and they buried him at his request in Canaan. And when they returned to the land of Egypt, now with their dad out of the picture, Joseph's brothers got scared that he would exact his revenge on them for the way that they had wronged him in the past. Look at Genesis 50 and these reassuring words that Joseph spoke to them. Genesis 50 verse 15 When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive. I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In short, what Joseph said to his brothers is, hey guys, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. And that's what we should be able to say no matter what others do to us or no matter what happens to us. Now not in a flippant or lighthearted way as if what we're going through or what others are going through is not that big of a deal but as an expression of our deep-seated conviction that everything that happens to us is sovereignly ordained by God and providentially orchestrated by God for his glory and our good. This is one of the most comforting and encouraging verses in the entire Bible, but I just want to remind us before we get into it, that we need to be careful how and when we quote Romans 8, 28 to others. This is one of our go-to verses, right, that we love to share with others in times of need. And I just want to remind us that there's a right way and a wrong way to come alongside someone when they're experiencing the pain and sorrow of losing a game or losing a job or losing a parent or losing a child, Proverbs 25, 20 says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. And so we got to be careful that we don't just sweep into somebody's pain and suffering with a sing-songy attitude and say, oh, Romans 8, 28, you know, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes the best thing to do is just show up and sit there on the ash heap and not say a word. That's what Job's counselors did at first. They sat there for an entire week, seven days, seven nights, didn't say a word because they could tell that Job was in such pain and anguish. But then they had to turn it into a group counseling session, right? where they started spouting off a bunch of good theology, but it didn't apply to Job, nor was it what he needed at the time. Timing is everything. And we need to remember that this verse was intended to soothe, not to sting. And so we need to keep in mind that Joseph said what he said at the end of his ordeal when he could clearly see the hand of God at work and all the awful things he endured. This was, this was at the end of his ordeal. I'm sure he wasn't so convinced that God was up to something good when he was being despised and mistreated by his brothers or when he was down in that pit or when he was being drug off to Egypt and sold as a slave or when he was falsely accused of rape and, or, or when he was thrown into prison and left there to rot. I imagine that when Joseph was in the midst of his ordeal and things didn't look good or feel good at all, he probably had a hard time believing that God was good, let alone in control of what was happening to him. But it's verses like the one we have in front of us, Romans 8, 28, that should convince us of the sovereign goodness of God particularly when our lives seem like a random mess. Your life ever feel like that? Just kind of like a random mess? (laughs) Well, I know of no other verse that is more relevant and reassuring, more helpful in providing both peace and perspective in life, especially when dealing with difficult circumstances than Romans 8, 28. It's um, just a simple yet profound expression of God's providential care for his children. And it's intended to provide us comfort and hope in the midst of the the pain and the the suffering we experience as we groan, that's the context, the groanings, right here in Romans chapter 8, as we groan to be free from this sin-cursed world and this sin-cursed body that we live in, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and we're finally glorified and all things will be ultimately restored to their original state of perfection. But until that glorious day, it's essential to our sanctification that we keep this glorious promise in the forefront of our minds at all times. Kelly wondered why preparing a message on one verse took me so long maybe longer than a longer text might take me. And I began to think about why was that? And, well, it probably was that throughout my life in ministry, I probably quoted this verse to myself and other people more than any other verse in the Bible. And as I considered the the hundreds, maybe even thousands of sermons that I preached, this was probably the one verse that intersected the most with all the different Messages from all the different books of the Bible and different passages in the Bible that I've ever taught on. And so it it all kind of was just like this jumbled up spider web in my head. And I thought, man, this is just overwhelming. This truth is so simple yet so profound. And the reason why we all need to be regularly reminded of this verse is because we tend to struggle with trusting God when life is hard or when life hurts. If there was one book that I could recommend that every one of you read, apart from the Bible, obviously, it's this book right here. Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. A book written by Jerry Bridges. Just curious, how many of you have read this book? Okay. There needs to be a lot more hands next time I ask that question. This is one of the most foundational books, most helpful books that I've ever read. It's probably the book that I've handed out the most to other people, uh, whether it's just in personal interaction, discipleship, counseling. Uh, This has been the book that I've given to people because what Jerry Bridges does is he simply highlights three attributes of God, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, and the love of God. And he shows how all of those attributes come together uh, in, in in a powerful way, in a very practical way, to show us that God can, is worthy to be trusted. Even we don't understand what in the world is going on in our lives and what in the world he could possibly be up to in our pain and our suffering. Let me just share one quote from that book. Bridges writes, All people, believers as well as unbelievers, experience anxiety, frustration, heartache, and disappointment, Some suffer intense physical pain and catastrophic tragedies, but that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all powerful and all loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and our good. That's helpful truth, is it not? And this book is chock full of statements like that. I would encourage you to make a beeline to the Resource Center or amazon.com, however you get your books, and buy this today and start reading it. Well, let's take a few moments to unpack this verse that is tightly packed with powerful and practical truths. And I really wrestled with how I should outline this verse or if I should even outline it at all. It was almost like I didn't want to mess with it. I didn't want to tinker with it. I didn't want to, you know, uh, take away anything from it, like putting it in some kind of man-made box. Uh, I, I did appreciate how John Stott broke this verse apart into just the five phrases. God causes, number one, all things, number two, to work together for good, number three, to those who love God, number four to those who are called according to his purpose, number five. And he says that these five statements reveal five unshakable convictions that every believer must have regarding the sovereign goodness of God. I like that. That's good. And that's a great way to study Scripture, is just to kind of break it up and just take it word for word, phrase by phrase, line by line. But I decided to uh, just go with something of my own, just to break this verse into two parts The first half, we could call the unshakable conviction. The second half, the unavoidable condition. Let's look at these two parts of this verse. Number one, the unshakable conviction. Notice what Paul says. And we know. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul just got done saying that we didn't know something. Verse 27, well, excuse me, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul just got done saying we do not know how to pray as we should. We don't, know, don't always know what God's will is for our lives or what he's up to in our trials and adversities that we face in our lives. But Paul went on here to say that we do know something. What do we know? We know, and not just know, we know with absolute certainty, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as a matter of fact, that whatever happens to us has been sovereignly ordained by God who providentially orchestrates everything in our lives to bring himself glory and accomplish good in our lives. Notice Paul didn't say, and we see that God causes all things to work together for good or and we feel like God causes all things to work together for good because there's lots of times in our lives when things don't look good And they don't feel good. But we, what does he say? We know for a fact that God is up to something good despite how things may appear or how they may feel. So whenever things look and feel bad, we need to remember this unshakable conviction that God sovereignly ordains and providentially orders everything for his glory and our good. Notice he says, and we know that, what? God causes all things to work together for good. This promise is founded based upon the sovereign goodness of God. In other words, God is both sovereign and, he is bo- and he's also good. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, to most of us, but that's not how the world thinks. Some of you may remember back in the early 80s, a a famous Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner wrote a New York Times bestseller titled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Anybody remember that book? And it was praised by critics as being this, quote, honest, honest, courageous, compassionate, wise, insightful, and unprecedented source of comfort providing invaluable reassurance. Well, I don't know, that would make me want to read that book. Well, the book was Kushner's attempt to to make sense out of the fate of his own son who suffered from a rare condition called progeria, which is that rapid aging disease where a little child looks like a little old man and, and Kirshner had to ask himself the question that countless individuals have struggled with and it's this, if God is both powerful and good then why is there so much pain and suffering and heartache in the world? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So Kirshner, Kirshner logically concluded that God must be one or the other. He must be either good, but not totally powerful. Or He must be powerful, but not totally good. But you, you can't have it both ways, because if it was, then you wouldn't have all this pain and suffering and heartache. And so in the midst of his personal tragedy, Kushner opted to believe that God was good, but not even God can keep cruelty and chaos from touching innocent lives. God is like a helpless parent who's up in heaven, kind of wringing his hands. He's, he's, he's He's concerned. He's even saddened by our suffering, but there's nothing he can do to fix it, even if he wanted to. And so, in effect, what Kushner did is he blatantly denied God's sovereignty or his ability to control the events of our lives. Listen to what he said, and I quote. If we have grown up believing in an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God, by the way, that's me. I'm sure that's many of you, right? It will be hard for us to change our way of thinking about him. But if we can bring ourselves to acknowledge that there are some things that God does not control, many good things become possible. We simply have to learn to live with the fact that some things happen for no reason, that there is randomness in the universe. That is supposed to be unprecedented, an unprecedented source of comfort providing invaluable reassurance. That freaks me out. <laughs> I don't know how to live with that view of God. And yet, that's clearly how the majority of people in our world think and live. If you consider the the regular use of commonly accepted phrases like, man, that was a fluke thing, that was a freak accident, a chance encounter, what a coincidence! You got lucky. That was a random act of violence. Those were circumstances beyond anyone's control. See, all of these are blasphemous phrases that contradict one of the most basic truths of the Bible, that God sovereignly controls everything in the universe and everything in our individual lives. Some verses that highlight God's sovereignty, and we don't have time to Look at all of them, obviously, but just a few. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. One of my favorites is Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Verse 8, remember this and be assured, recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. And then in the New Testament, a couple other examples. Ephesians 1 verse 11. We have been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 15. In concluding his first letter to Timothy, he says this. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Again, those are just a few verses on the sovereignty of God. Another word that we don't hear very often these days that's closely associated with God's sovereignty is God's providence. With God's providence. Um, it's interesting that one of the capitals of one of the states in America is called Providence, Providence, Rhode Island. And the guy who founded that city was unjustly treated and falsely accused and basically ran out of another one of the colonies and he ended up in this region and he decided to call it Providence, as a, as a reminder that all that had happened to him to get him to where he was was all part of God's providence. And what's sad to know, I just read an article the other day that um, the majority of cities that are considered post-Christian uh, in our country are all in the, the majority are in the New England states. In fact, the, the city that was closest to where I grew up is the number one post-Christian city in America, Springfield, Holyoke, Massachusetts. And it's just a tragedy to see how far our country has come. But this, this word providence is a very important word. In fact, Romans 8, 28 is, is not so much about the sovereignty of God as it is about the providence of God. You say, what's the difference? Well, God's providence is how he carries out his sovereign Plans, the things that he's ordained, the things that he's decreed, he carries them out. He fulfills them through his providence or how he constantly cares for and provides for his children. Probably my favorite example in the Bible of providence is the book of Esther. Are you familiar with the story of Esther? It's an amazing story, but the whole book, this is an entire book. The story of Joseph is a great Story, don't get me wrong, but this entire book, the entire book of Esther is devoted to establishing and exemplifying the doctrine of divine providence. And what makes the book of Esther so fascinating is that God's name is never mentioned anywhere in the book. But you can see his hand working behind the scenes to fulfill his purposes for his chosen people in ways that the world would call, wow, those are some kind of coincidences that's not a coincidence, it's providence. And usually when we are in the midst of a catastrophe or a crisis, it's, it's hard to see God's hand of providence. But what Esther teaches us is that God is most present when he's most hidden. He's most at work when he seems like he's not at work. This should provide us peace and perspective when we find ourselves in what appears to be a desperate situation when we're tempted to ask, hey, where where is God in all of this? Again, Jerry Bridges makes this very practical statement. Did your car break down when you could least afford the repairs? (laughs) How many times that happened, right? Did you miss an important meeting because the plane you were to fly in developed mechanical problems? The God who controls the stars in their courses also controls nuts and bolts and everything on your car and on that plane you were to fly in. See, I don't know that we think about God's providences down to the little details. And listen, the devil's not in the details, God's in the details. And he says this, if we are to trust God, we must learn to see that he is continuously at work in every aspect and every moment of our lives. And this includes all the, the practical things that we deal with in life, like the traffic jam, for example. A few weeks back, we were headed to a wedding for a, a daughter of some dear friends and up in Dallas, and we were all excited. The whole family was going, and we had two cars, and we were making it a caravan. It was going to be fun, and we were going to spend the night and, and have a great time. And, and uh, so we started heading up 45 and made it to Willis, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden, everything stopped. And it took us four hours to get from Willis to Huntsville State Park. And if you ever made that drive, right? I mean, we didn't get to big old Sam on the side of the road, okay? They were exiting us all off the freeway. And so we're sitting there for four hours. And when we were exiting, it was six o'clock, the time when the wedding was supposed to start. And so we thought, well, maybe we can make it to the reception, right? Well, by that time, the band, I, I actually texted the guy said, how long did you rent the band for? You know, can we, can we still make it? And so we just turned around and, uh, but I tell you, there was definitely some consternation in that car. We were trying to figure out who's the genius, okay, who shuts down 45 on Saturday afternoon, right? And it uh, doesn't tell anybody, at least from what we could find. We, we didn't see it anywhere. And we even looked after the fact, like, where was this? We didn't see it anywhere. Anyway, it was, you know, so this applies to the traffic jam the misplaced wallet, the flat tire, the argument with your spouse that you had this morning, the lost job, the rebellious son or daughter, the miscarriage, the unfair coach or teacher or professor, that long checkout line, the flooded house, the failed test, the sore throat, you, you fill in the blank. John Piper, weighs in on this in his book, Future Grace. He said this, quote, if we believe that our holdup at the long red light was God's keeping us from an accident about to happen, we would be patient and happy. If we believe that our broken leg was God's way of revealing early cancer in the x-ray so that we could survive, we would not murmur at the inconvenience. If we believe that the middle of the night phone call was God's way of waking us up to smell smoke in the basement, we would not grumble at the loss of sleep. He said, the strength of patience hangs in our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. How do you respond to the delays and detours that God ordains and orders in your life? If anyone were observing you when you came up on a delay or some kind of detour of life, Based on your response, would they know that you are absolutely convinced that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Would they get that from observing your reaction, your response to the delays and detours of life? See, nothing brings us more comfort, more confidence, more hope than knowing that God is sovereignly at work in everything, both the big things and the little things. I was talking to some friends who moved from California to Nashville to take a a job at a church, and they were super excited, they they couldn't, uh, he was just sharing with me that uh, uh, they never felt a clearer call from the Lord to go anywhere than to go to this church in, in Nashville. And they were there plugged in and serving and having a great time. And, and uh, before they knew it, um, for various reasons, they had to leave and find another church. And uh, it was a heartbreaking situation. But in the meantime, the the wife contracted or was diagnosed with leukemia, and uh, she spent a number of months in Vanderbilt Hospital, one of the highest rated top hospitals right for cancer in the nation, and uh, my friend told me the other day, he said, you know, I'm thinking that God didn't bring us over here for that church. I'm thinking he brought us here so we'd be close to Vanderbilt because he knew my wife had leukemia. And I thought, how cool is that to see God's hand of providence, his sweet providence in the big things of life and, and, and even the little inconsequential things. Well, in my life, snakes are not inconsequential. Why does it have to be snakes? I hate snakes. And I was getting ready to run out the door for the softball game the other day or, or Friday night, and, and, and I, I just came around the corner, and I saw this bird hopping up our sidewalk. And I thought, that's kind of strange. And I came closer to it, and it didn't fly away. And I thought... And I could tell he was kind of curious. And so I, I looked ahead of him, and sure enough, there was this big old snake slithering across the front of our, our, our porch, right off the step-off. And I thought, oh, man, I hate snakes, man. And and. I, Lord, I don't have time for this. I gotta go to the softball game and I'm pitching tonight. I got a doubleheader, you know? And, and uh, so anyway, I grabbed the shovel and I prayed for Jacob to get home as soon as possible because I knew he was on his way. I was gonna borrow his car. And so sure enough, he, he comes in the driveway. He opens the door and said, Jacob, here's a shovel. I need you to kill that snake and I need to borrow your car, okay? And uh, so I jumped in the car and I head up and I'm praying the whole way. Like I, That was my way of escaping, right? Having to deal with that. So sure enough, um, the kid sent me a video afterwards and said, don't worry, Dad, we got this. And uh, kind of in my face with this dead snake on the shovel, you know, with the head here and the body here. And um, I was praying for him on the way. though. I was. I was really praying that God would keep him safe. And I told him that was my birthday present, okay, that they killed a the snake so I didn't have to. So uh, again, what, what are you talking about? God... Works all things, causes all things to work together for the big things, the cancer things and the snake things, right? The, the things that really matter and the things that really don't matter. That all things is an important part of this verse. It's God's sovereign control, providential care is totally comprehensive. It's all inclusive. It even includes evil things like suffering and persecution and temptation and even our sin. There's some verses that I have in the notes there and some of the application questions we won't take time to read in Job and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, some verses that are you just got to wrestle with because it says that God is responsible. God is the one who ordains both good and evil. And that brings up the whole problem of evil and uh, what about, you know, what are we to do with this? And. I would simply say this, based on the testimony of Scripture, God is not the author of evil or sin, but in His divine wisdom, He permitted it, ordained it, if you will, to exist in order to put on display His attributes in dealing with it. Wrestle with those verses. Look them up. Stew over them. Meditate on those things but I think it will give you hope that God is sovereign over the evil acts of others towards us, even their mistakes, their failures, the drunk driver, the surgeon that botches the surgery or the, the doctor that misdiagnoses the cancer. God can even bring good from the most devious, diabolical acts and worst offenses imaginable, whether it's molestation or murder or terrorist attacks. He even uses our sinful Decisions and evil actions to show us the depth of our own depravity. See what's the good that came of that sin? Well, you know how much of a sinner you are. That's a good thing. You know how how now how powerless you are to fight against sin on your own. God uses these things to strip us of our self-confidence, of our self-righteousness, and to make us more dependent on him and make us hate sin more and to to make us more holy. Hebrews 12, 10, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. A good example of that is the, the nation of Israel when they were wandering uh, through the wilderness. What was that all about? That 40 years of wandering through the desert. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 15. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. I'm glad I wasn't there. And thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna with your fathers did not, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you. Here it is, to do good for you in the end. And so he used uh, the wilderness wanderings. He also used the exile. Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 5, when uh, Judah was uh, in exile in Babylon. This is what Jeremiah said to encourage them. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans, for I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart." So what was the good in this punishment for their sin? They were being punished for their their immorality and and their idolatry and they were in exile and what was the good that could come possibly from that is guess what? They were gonna return, they were gonna repent and they were gonna return to me with their whole heart. They would be way more committed to God as a result of this. And then of course we just sang about this, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Again, he's writing to people who are in exile, who are enslaved as a result of their sin. They were experiencing the consequences of their sin. And he says, hey, I got, I got good plans for you. Plans to, to prosper you. Then you will call upon me and come pray to me and I will listen to you. In other words, I'm using all of this to, to, to draw you back to myself so you seek me with all your heart. So God, working all things together for good doesn't necessarily mean physically physical things like being healthy and wealthy. Oftentimes it's spiritual things. And it's also doesn't mean that everything in our lives will always turn out great. Marriages sometimes fail. People get divorced. Sometimes kids walk away from the Lord. Sometimes loved ones get cancer and they die. But someday, in some way, God will transform those painful Experiences into blessings and use them for our benefit. And in the midst of all the, the hurts and the pains and the trials and the temptations and adversities and offenses that we face in life, we can rest assured that God is behind it all. And he providentially is working out his sovereign purposes for our lives. And even when we don't know exactly what he might be doing, all the details, we know for, for a fact that the ultimate thing, the ultimate good that he is working is that he's making us more like Jesus. And we have to see verse 28 in connection with verse 29 for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined be to become conformed to the image of his son. So, what's the, the good? That God is working through your pain and your suffering. He's making you more like Jesus. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. That's the unshakable conviction. Now let's just look quickly at the unavoidable condition, the unavoidable condition, and we won't take a whole lot of time because we're gonna. This carries over into the next few verses, but. But we need to understand here, what does it say? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's the unshakable conviction. But what's the unavoidable uh, uh, condition here? It says, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, as great as this promise is, it's not an unconditional promise that applies to just everybody or just anyone. There's a built-in qualification. You must be a Christian, you hear a lot of people use the expression, well, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Well, that sounds kind of pious, but it's really a nebulous, superficial, secular response to the ups and downs of life. See, only a child of God, that's who Paul is writing to here, who he's addressing and it's in the context of we who are the sons and daughters of God, only we can claim this clear, Profound biblical promise that God works everything together for our good. Why? Because we love God. We love God, which is the most basic mark of a genuine believer. It's love for God. That's what that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about loving God. Matthew twelve verse twenty eight. What is the first commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. You shall what? Love the Lord. Your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. 1 Peter 1.8 says this about believers. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And by the way, the only reason why we love God is because he loved us first. He poured out his love in our hearts. We learned that in chapter 5, verse 5. We're going to be seeing here um, in verse 35 of this chapter that nothing can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ. We love because he first loved us. And that's essentially what he, Paul goes on to say, this second qualification, if you will, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a reference to God's effectual call for salvation, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. In, in more detail, but just for now, we need to understand that God has extended a general call to all mankind to be saved. Isaiah 45, turn to me all the ends of the earth, uh, and for I am God and there is no other. Basically what he said. That general call to all mankind to turn to him to be saved is widely rejected. But he's also extended a special call an effectual call, as it's often referred to, to the elect, which inevitably convicts them of their sin and irresistibly draws them to faith in Christ. Paul mentioned this in chapter 1 Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. So it's talking about the sovereign calling of God in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. So again, we'll get into this more detail next week, but the promise that Paul made here only applies to those who are beloved by God and have been sovereignly called by God's grace for salvation. There's and there's, there's this connection between being beloved and being called. Years ago, somebody sent me a quote that I never forgot. It's from Spurgeon. And this is what he said, quote, "...it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord." Did you hear that? It is impossible that any ill or bad should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. In other words, whatever bad things happen to those who are beloved by the Lord are really good things in disguise. I'll begin by reminding you of the story of Joseph. Let me end by reminding you of the death of Jesus. Acts chapter 2. Love this. Acts chapter 2. These are Peter's words that he preached in that great sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then turn over to Acts chapter 4. One time they were praying after being told not to preach the gospel, not to tell others about Jesus. And so the disciples got back together to pray. And in chapter 4, verse 27, this is what they prayed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God used the greatest evil ever committed in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to accomplish the greatest good, your salvation, my salvation. What the Jewish religious leaders, what the Roman soldiers meant for evil, God meant for good. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us to rest in your perfect plan that you've sovereignly ordained for our lives and that you're in the process of providentially working out in our lives. I pray that you would help us to remain absolutely convinced that you're using everything that we're facing right now to make us more like your son Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die for us. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who wants this promise to apply to them, but they know they can't claim that promise because they're not believers, they're not Christians, that, Lord, you would sovereignly grant them repentance and faith today. That they could walk out of here able to claim this precious promise Lord, we are stunned at how you are able to work through the worst things, to accomplish the best things in our lives. I pray we'd find great refuge, great strength that this, in this verse, that this verse would be a stronghold for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.